My name is Michael Robinson. Every episode of Melody Rules that was ever made, all 40 of them, was directed by me. I think Michael was a little out of his depth in directing. Michael Robinson? He'd never directed. You'd think you might want to put an experienced director in there. I knew I had my work cut out for me, and I just thought, I just got to do my best. Talk about just put some kids in a playpen, and off you go. Somehow I thought, I could pull this off. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can do it. <laughs> it was wrong. That is poor Michael Robinson, the man charged with directing Melody Rules. Hi, I'm Jeff Houtman, the man responsible for creating Melody Rules. It's had a lasting effect on my life and perhaps a lasting effect on Michael's too. And that is what this podcast is all about, to find out if I'm to blame for the myriad of miseries of all the people who worked on what is now known as the worst sitcom ever made. Maybe if I hadn't come up with the show in the first place, then Michael's first foray into sitcom directing might have been more forgiving. But perhaps for the first time in this podcast so far, I feel like I'm not solely to blame for the pain of others. Because as Michael is about to tell us, becoming the director of Melody Rules is all his fault. I was part of the original writing team from the writing team, pitched to direct one of the three sitcoms uh, that we made non-broadcast pilots out of. There was two that we really liked, and none of us liked Melody Rules. Ross Jennings hired two experienced multi-camera directors to helm the two good ones, and I kind of think he just sort of chucked me on Melody Rules because we all wanted it to die. <laughs> what he hadn't thought of was the fact that I actually knew comedy, and the other multi-camera directors had never directed comedy before. So it was a real pity because these two good scripts they didn't come out funny. And this kind of crappy script that I had came out funny enough to, to get the nod. Michael was a lot of fun. I remember him being a lot of fun. This is Ian Chapman, who as a teenager was a core cast member playing Melody's younger brother, Jeff. He never got sort of pissy at us or anything like this, the kids mucking around, you know. He was very passionate about what he did. But the one thing I remember about Michael that made him the coolest guy in my mind was that he played a robot in a MacGyver episode. He had been on MacGyver, and he had played a robot. And I remember thinking, that guy is the business. Well, what I remember from Melody Rules wasn't pressure, it was the amount of work. Like, I was exhausted. It was exhausting, because what I should be doing is just taking a bunch of talented actors and blocking them for maximum comedy and letting them do their thing. And what I was doing was taking a bunch of actors and then having to just teach them how to act and have to explain to them why they have to stand where they're standing and why they have to react because they don't know because they've never acted before you know and that was it was a huge amount of extra work uh, on top of the normal work which is really a lot he was very helpful to Elliot and I about just direction and he'd take time and lots of stuff and actually talk us through things because yeah just re-emphasizing I don't know whether Elliot did or not but I had no acting experience I had no coaching or training or anything you know this was the first time um, and it showed. Yeah, I think Ian was just surprised and dazed by the whole thing. The notorious Belinda Todd, who portrayed the titular character, 
melody. We used to have to give him notes like Blink. <laughs> the sweetest guy couldn't act his way out of a wet paper bag. And, and would probably tell you the same. I don't know how he ended up there. I don't know why he, why he was there. As well as inexperienced actors, Michael had to manage many things and wear many hats. As a director, you have to interpret the intentions of the writers and realise the comedy intended in their scripts. You have to instruct the camera operators, tell them what shots to get and which actor to be filming when. And most importantly, you have to work with the actors to get the best performance possible. So, for Michael, as a first-time director, managing all of these tasks on a project he wasn't very enthused about led to a certain amount of frustration. There were some very difficult moments between Belinda, myself, and, and him. This is Susan Brady, who played Melody's best friend, Fiona. There was one I remember really clearly that was a defining moment in my life, actually. Oh, cool. <laughs> just because it was a very odd experience, eh? And I'm sure you guys felt this as well. Yeah. Of we're in something that's not working. And and Michael, I think he was under a huge amount of pressure and I have no idea who was talking to him or how much pressure he was under, but I think he knew that this is not as easy as I thought it might be. Yes. <laughs> it's really yes. hard. And you've got two strong women in the room. Belinda and I were trying to make it the best that we could be and we were confused by some things and so we would ask questions and we were like what about this and what if that and how maybe we could such and such and I think there was a day where he snapped and just really took to us in a really bad way and saying awful things like we were being negative and we were dragging it down and we were blocking everything. And it was like we were both so flummoxed. We, everything we've been doing has been to add and to give meaning. This is why the questions are here. We want to make this better. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> there was definitely a high level of frustration at times. Because uh, I, I had very little time to get this thing done, and I, and there wasn't a lot of time sometimes to argue a point. And uh, you know, Susan's uh, wonderfully talented, and like all wonderfully talented actors, has a strong vision or idea of where she wanted to take her character. You know, I, I'd have Belinda saying one thing and Susan saying something else, and they, 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 you know, we could talk for an hour arguing over some way to where we should be standing in the kitchen, you know, and I would just get the point out, ah, you're standing there, just fucking stand there, say your line. <laughs> I literally halfway through just stood up. <laughs> I stormed out of the thing. I slammed the door and I was just like, <sighs> I was just breathing so hard. I was so confused. I was so upset. I was so angry. Finally, I calmed myself down and I was like, oh man, this is embarrassing now. <laughs> Now I have to go back. And um, I went back, and the door was on its hinges. I slammed the door so hard, I broke it. Yes! None of us were in a great place. I saw Michael at a party years later. It was some time had gone yes. past. And um, he actually came up to me and apologized to me for that moment. So bless his heart, you know, he recognized that that was not the best way to, to maybe deal with that moment either. And then as if Michael's job wasn't hard enough, there was the set. Which was less a set and more three walls made of plywood. 
I, I remember being really flabbergasted, like just walking in. Uh, I think it was only the week before we would get to shoot, and I was just shown it, and I was like, can't be serious. We can't shoot in here. When did we know it was going to go? Was when we saw what the set was. But it was also because we were told we couldn't write exteriors. And a lot of shows, a lot of great sitcoms are written and don't have a lot of exteriors, but the audience needs some visual interest where they get to go outside. Like, friends would go outside. Seinfeld went to his cafe. Mm-hmm. They'd have a They'd shot. do stuff on the side of the street. Yeah, no, and we could have done that stuff, but they just had this hard and fast rule. We only had two sets, essentially. We had the kitchen and we had the lounge. There was the lounge on the right and there was the kitchen on the left. There, there was a dividing wall. It was pretty much chipboard. Um, <laughs> and there was quote-unquote, upstairs, mm-hmm. going nowhere. <laughs> and we had stairs that went up to nothing, right? So if I sent someone upstairs, they had to go up in this sort of crouch <laughs> with, with, with their head against the ceiling. And they sort of had to do this very awkward walk to, to make it look natural that you were walking up or downstairs. You sort of had to sort of unfold your body as you came down <laughs> just before you came on camera. <laughs> How those actors manage it, I do not know. You know, us all having to run and hide in our little kind of positions that we were going to enter from and be super quiet for the duration, like, and would sort of pop up from essentially a stairwell that went nowhere or, like, a cupboard around the back, you know, and be like, oh, <laughs> ta-da, <laughs> you know. And so when we would exit, there was this really cramped space, and if we had to exit at the beginning of the scene, we'd be standing at the back there for about 15 minutes while they shot the rest of it and over and over again and takes and all that sort of stuff. But I do remember it was real impressive to me when I walked into the set at TV3 and I was like, wow. <laughs> like, I thought that was so amazing. <laughs> and you look at it now and you're like, damn, that thing looks like it's on the verge of falling over. Like, you can see the walls shaking when people are walking around and stuff. <laughs> and my enduring memory of the show is the door. Opening by itself in the back of the set because that's how much money they wanted to spend on the house that Melody lived in. The set was so shonky that you know you close the door and everything would have a little bit of a shake, but the door it closed and then it just opened and then you realize, oh my god, that's just like you know that's a crappy door. It's not even it's not even a real door and it just stayed open and then they just carried on the scene. The set was a nightmare. It restricted our writing and restricted the actors. It was like we'd been given a screwdriver and some screws and told to build a car. If you don't have all the tools you need, or if the tools you have aren't good enough, then you don't stand much of a chance of doing the job properly. Then, on top of it all, we had to deal with TV3, which 25 years ago was brand spanking new and just coming to terms with what it meant to be a national broadcaster. So, as a result, and as we were all slowly learning, it was a network with a culture all of its own. And a network with problems all of its own. For TV3, it was the time. We were going to thrash TVNZ. Um, That didn't happen, of course. This is Bob Pegram, one of the lucky individuals who got to operate camera for Melody Rules. We tried to do things that the other side didn't do. TV3 was a fun place to work at. It gave you a lot of opportunities. And this is another camera operator, Ted Copper, who was just starting out his career at TV3. It seemed if they hired you, you learnt as quick as fast. They put you in any situation, any job. I didn't have any drama cameramen. I had sports cameramen. 
uh, so the TV3 sports team was, was my camera crew. And it's different. Filming actors is not the same as filming sports. It's filming sports, you follow the ball. Filming an actor, you watch the actor change emotionally and you frame it differently. So I had a bunch of bunch of guys who had never filmed drama before as my camera crew. The station was in constant receivership. It went through different owners. You have to understand, too, that the company had gone through three successive redundancies at the time. The air at the time when we started was quite sensitive. So the camera department was having Friday night drinks there because you didn't know if you'll have a job the next month or the next month or the next month. So it was um, the responsibility of the camera department to have morale parties <laughs> um, to the point where they had to be stopped in the building and find another place outside. But it was actually morale building at the time. It was a different time. And what was the outcome of TV3's financial insecurities for us? Well, one very uncomfortable result was our studio. Because instead of filming on a spacious, soundproof studio lot, a cash-conscious TV3 thought it best and cheapest to let us use theirs, which was downstairs at the TV3 building next to the garage, and before we used it, was probably some kind of storeroom for brooms and cleaning products. You know, we had that set, and it was like a closet. Mm. I mean, it was literally, you, you couldn't have swung a cat in that thing. You would have hit everything off the shelves. Yeah, the set was infuriating. It was very small. They never got out of that fucking lounge. You know, we're in this tiny, tiny studio that was too small for the news, so they put the sitcom in there. I could never get my head around it. Yeah, I really felt sorry for the crew. In terms of camera work, it was probably the hardest job we had, and there was just no room to move cameras around anyway. TV3 didn't have the space to do a lot of programmes. We were using places everywhere to shoot. Um, even the OB garage. Uh, <laughs> so trying to negotiate a ped, boom operators, crew, the set itself, uh, very difficult. And it got very hot, there was no air conditioning in it. Once you came through the single door in the studio, to the right of the single door was a, was a column, which obviously was holding up half the building. And the camera was stuck behind the column and the wall. And the operator was sort of scrunched up in the corner with his elbows up trying to focus and zoom and everything else, and he couldn't go anywhere. I just felt so sorry for the camera operators. They couldn't get particular shots, and they'd be cramped right up against the wall. I mean, that was a comedy in itself. They had to remove the goddamn walls to turn the camera around, to get different angles. They couldn't, there wasn't enough room to get, like, a long shot. They had to, like, literally take the wall out, turn the cameras around so that they could have a sense of space because the space was so small. But we couldn't roll the camera into the set, I think, for some reason, because the flooring wasn't right. So what you want is this sort of really smooth floor so the cameras can dolly and roll around everywhere so you get these lovely tracking shots. But I couldn't do that. I don't think you could get it right for sitcoms with that small of a set. See, most sitcoms, uh, the tightest shot that you will ever get is a mid-shot from waist high. And we were going MCU, MCU to either MCU matching shot to maybe a mid-shot if we go wild and crazy, you know. And then we poached the news cameras, right? And then if we ran late, they'd have to run them back because they had the news on. I think even the um, boom operators had to stand around the back of the wall with the arms outstretched, <laughs> pushing the boom up because there wasn't anywhere to be out of shot. 
So who was the poor boom operator forced to squash against the fake walls? Uh, it was a big kind of humble pie thing to be like, okay, swallow, swallow your pride, go back to Ross. This is Matt Donaldson, who you might remember was one of the creators of the original Melody Rules concept. And as he found out, once you're part of Melody Rules, there's no leaving it behind. Again, I was like, fuck you guys, I'm out. And then I realised, oh, that's right, I don't have a university degree, and I didn't go to university, and oh, that's right, it, family life sucked. And, and these are the only people I've ever met in television. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I went back, and Ross very, very graciously said, I'm sure we can find something for you, Matt. And next thing I know, I'm holding boom. I'm swinging <laughs> boom on Melody Rules. So he was back. And without ever having held a microphone before, he found himself putting his life in danger on the set of the show that he had helped to create. So three cameras moving on wheels really fast. And the depth of the studio meant that for a boom guy to get right in over the top um, and have the mic hovering above talent's heads, I had to stretch and lean on top of a stepladder. And... Osh, osh. Osh, osh. (laughs) <laughs> and the director from the OB had said, you know, get this tracking shot. And <laughs> the cameraman bumped the stepladder and I wobbled. And I was like, okay, I can either drop this boom right on Blinda Todd's head and come crashing into the camera and piss this camera guy off and wreck myself. Or I can bounce off the wall and it'd be fine. And I fell into the wall and... The wall wasn't a wall. The wall was chipboard or fucking polystyrene or something, man, because I went, snap! And all I heard on my, my headphones was, uh, we got some handling noise there. Can we take it? <laughs> Just like our flimsy walls, the production was falling apart, with an inexperienced director struggling with the actors and hampered by that tiny set. You can't go into something under-resourced and without all the tools you need. The final result is always a sum of all the parts, and if you skimp on the parts, then you're headed for failure. The tools we had to work with were pale imitations of what was actually needed. We were trying to create an American-style sitcom in a broom cupboard. That decision that was meant to help out by saving money only threw up more problems we had to deal with. TV3 had already gone bankrupt once, so there was this real atmosphere of frugality that was stifling. With the ever-present threat of redundancies, the pressure was felt in every department to make every cent stretch. And on screen, this cheapness was seen everywhere. Right down to the costumes and props. Someone said, when she's stirring stuff out the stove, can you just put something in the pot? <laughs> it was like a spoon in an empty saucepan. Just a can of baked beans, something. Just so it looks like she's not rattling a wooden spoon around in an empty pot on a stove that doesn't have any fire. It was the wonderful set designer. Brought in all the things that were off from his kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and dressed... Um, with uh, putrefied food. (laughs) There was a show and it had silly hats in and that that was really embarrassing. There was something to do with the girls going shopping, and at the end of the gig, they uh, at the end of the show, they come back with these hats they bought, and they just looked 
ridiculous and not in a funny way, but in a kind of a sad way. You know, we kept being asked to put on silly hats. We were all trying to play the truth and we were trying to have real moments. And every time we tried to have a real moment, I remember getting directions of like, you're too real. You guys are having a heart to heart moment and it's too real. And it's like, what do you mean? It was like, you know, wardrobe kept being told to give us funny hats. And (laughs) why can't we have real people who happen to be in funny situations? Why do they need a silly hat? I can I can fill you in on that question. The we literally got notes at the writers' table: more silly hats, more shenanigans. Someone got a kick out of the silly hats. On the next episode of the worst sitcom ever made, is he guru or con man? I discovered that if I could get people to be personally loyal to me, fall in love with me, that they would go the extra mile for me. The thing is, everywhere in the world I've gone, I could get them to drink the Kool-Aid. The worst sitcom ever made is produced for RNZ by The Download Concept and Glynis Stewart. The studio engineer was Jeremy Veal. The coordinating producer for RNZ is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you want to catch up on this or other episodes of the worst sitcom ever made, go to the podcast page at RNZ or you can find it on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public and Google Play. And while you're there, you can check out other RNZ podcasts like the new series of Bang. The worst sitcom ever made is presented by me. Jeff Howe. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.